You're listening to the Restoration Church Bible Study. Join us each week as Gloria Lee takes us verse by verse through the Old Testament. All right, so we're in Ezra and we are starting chapter 2. And um, here they are returning to Jerusalem from captivity, some 50,000 with Zerubbabel, and he is called um, Zerubbabel in Matthew. He just has his name is spelled differently, but that's the way it goes in the scriptures. I'm going to read a side note that came out that's in my Bible, talking about chapter 2, verse 1, that probably these individuals from all the tribes returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, but speaking broadly, the dispersion of the ten tribes, Ephraim through Israel, still continues, nor can they now be positively identified. They are, however, preserved distinct from other peoples and are known to God as such, though they themselves are few in number, and they don't even know the Lord. The order of the restoration was as follows. One, the return of the first detachment under Zerubbabel and Joshua, and that was in 536. And then, number two, the exposition of Ezra, in 458, that was 78 years after the first uh, group went. And then number three, the commission of Nehemiah, which was 14 years after Ezra brought his. So they continued to come at different times, three different times. And we see that still Jews are returning to Jerusalem. So in verse 1 and 2, of chapter 2. Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Riadiah, Mordecai, Bilsham, Misphar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. The number of these men of the people of Israel. That's the first two verses. So the returning exiles were called the children of the province. And what that means is that they were the children of the province of Persia, which was at Judah, because Persia owned that country at that time. Nehemiah's copy of the list adds one more. There are 11 on the list in this second verse, but Nehemiah adds one more. It was probably dropped as the Bible was copied, and that name was Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I think, in Nehemiah 7.7. So it ended up that there were actually 12 of these men who came back. And that corresponds with the 12 tribes, that corresponds with the 12 apostles, and they think that that's how it should have been. So Nehemiah and Mordecai are not the famous Nehemiah and Mordecai that we have read about in the Bible. There are two different men in both of those instances. Um, Nehemiah was 
one, one of the Nehemiahs was a governor of ancient Jerusalem. He was the author of the book of Nehemiah, and he is the son of Hachaliah, and that's in Nehemiah 1.1. He probably belonged to the tribe of Judah, and his family were a part of Jerusalem. And he was one of the Jews of the dispersion. In his youth, he was appointed to the important office of royal cupbearer for the palace of Shushan, or Susa. And the king authorized Nehemiah to act as Tershatha, as the govern, it was the governor of the Persian Judah. So he had control over Judah, but it still was owned by Persia. Okay. The second Nehemiah was the son of Azbuk, and that's in Nehemiah 3.16. He was the official of half of the district of Beth Sur in charge of making wall repairs as far as from opposite where the tombs of David were to the pool, the artificial pool, and the house of the mighty men. So those are the two Nehemiahs. Mordecai, ben Jair. He was the cousin and adopted father of Queen Esther. We know all about him. The son of Jair, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And through essential, uh, a series of events, he, although he was an exiled Jew, he became the second most powerful man in the empire of Persia. Mm. Um, he is the vizier of King Xerxes, and it's been alleged that he carried, was carried into captivity with Jeconiah. And so he had to be at least about 129 years old at that time that he came back from captivity. The second Mordecai is a companion of Zerubbabel. He's one of the Jews who returned from exile in Babylon, and he's mentioned in Ezra 2.2 and Nehemiah 7.7. So that's the two Mordecais. Then we have Zerubbabel. He was the appointed governor over the province of Judah. He was also the grandson of Sheetil, who was one of the kings, and the grandson of Jeconiah, who was a king of the last king of Judah. So he was of the line of David, and so that was a hope that they had, that they still had someone from that tribe of David that, that uh, was an heir to the throne. So we have to remember, though, the reason they came back to Judah was because of religion. Uh, he is probably the same person mentioned in Ezra, Ezra 1.8 named Sheshbazar. There is a uh, different people who think different things if they were the same person or if they were two different people. Ezra 5.6 says Sheshbazar laid the foundation of the temple. Ezra 3.8 says Zerubbabel did it. So they're thinking, well, it's the same person. They just had different names at different times. All right, then we have Jeshua, who was the high priest, who became the high priest there at that time. His name in Greek means Jesus. And uh, it's spelt Joshua in Haggai and Zechariah. And he was Zerubbabel's fellow leader. 
So those are the men. I just wanted to give you a little description of them. In verses 3 through 64, because this chapter has a lot of names in it, I'm not going to read all of those names. We would go to sleep by the time we got through them. But this list names the heads of the families with the numbers of men in those of the men in those families. So it means that the total number of people would include the children and the mothers, and so it would be more than that. Um, in verse 36, however, through 39, it does give us the names of the priests that returned. There were only four listed. Uh, uh, Jedediah, Emmer, Pasher, and Haram. And these families represented only four of the 24 divisions of the priesthood established by King David. So most of the priests did not come back, just four out of the 24. Wow. Then um, in beginning in verse 40, we see that the Levites returned. Some of them, we had singers, we had porters, we had nephims. And beginning with 55, we had the servants who, had, who were the descendants of Solomon's servants who came back. In verse 58, we have all the nephim and the children of Solomon's servants, and it says there were 392 of those. Now, these seem to be the descendants of the Gibeonites, who were made special servants of the Levites during the time of Joshua. And you remember in, when we talked about Joshua, the Gibeonites lived right next door, and they were supposed to destroy everyone who lived there. But the Gibeonites dressed up in old clothes and old shoes. They had stale bread, and they came, and they said, we came from far away. And so Joshua said, okay, we will make a covenant with you or a treaty with you so that you can live. And then three days later, they found out they were neighbors, and they were supposed to have destroyed them. And so they were made the water bearers, the drawers of water, and hewers of cedar of, uh, for the, the temple of Jerusalem. That was their punishment. It must have been, uh, that must have been the lowest portion of the servant. It was. It was the lowest level that you, you had because they were actually servants of the Levites, yes. So they, their purpose was just to minister to the Levites, do whatever the Levites told them to do. Now, this, was, this first wave of people who came back to J Judah from the captivity includes only the heads of families, and again, the total number of people that came was about 100 or 150,000 in those three different groups of people who came back to Judah. Now, Josephus, who was a writer at that time, and he spoke, many remained in Babylon being unwilling to leave their possessions because apparently if they left there, they had to leave their livelihood, and some of them had a very good livelihood. So when they came back, there was a, a much smaller state of, of Judah than when they left. And I have this map here, and it shows Judah right here, and that's all that was left. From here to here, it was 20, about 25 miles 
and from here to here it was about 32 miles. Now, if you think from here to Beaumont and, you know, maybe a little square, it was 800 square um, miles, and only a third of that portion was usable. The rest of it was arid, and they could not grow crops or anything there. So they just had a small amount of property at that time in Judah. Um, they went into captivity, and they had been stripped of everything. When they went in captivity, they had nothing. But when they came back, by the mercy of God, they, they had favor with God, and they had some substantial riches that people sent with them. So God remembered them and gave them favor. In verse 61 of chapter 2, here are some of the Levites that were returning, and they could not find their names in the register. There was a register that had all the names of the Levites in it. And if your name was there, then you were legitimate. If your name was not there, they were considered uh, polluted. So they couldn't trace their family history or themselves back to the Levites. And so they were put out of the priesthood. And they were kept out of the priesthood until they could prove to someone that they were actually a part of that priesthood. And the way they did that was the Urim and the Thummim. And so that was something that the, the high priest wore under their ephod in their, on the breast of their garment. And they had two stones in there, apparently. This is the way it's been described by many. One was a black stone, one was a white stone. And if they asked a question of God and they pulled out a black stone, the answer was no. If they pulled out a white stone, the answer was yes. And some, they're not sure what it looked like, but this is what they think it was. And it was some kind of device that they had some divine guidance from God by using it. So uh, that's kind of unusual. So um, the, <laughs> okay, there were about fifty thousand who returned the first time under the under Cyrus, and they were going back to build the temple. And they had seven hundred in verse sixty-six. It says they had seven hundred thirty-six horses, two hundred forty-five mules, four hundred thirty. Five camels, And some of the chief fathers, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is at Jerusalem, they offered freely for the house of God to be set up in its place. And they gave of their ability unto the treasure. And they came up with 61,000 talents, drams of gold. That's about $305,000. And uh, I think one dram is about $5. Then they had 5,000 pounds of silver and 100 priest garments. Then in verse 70, the priests, the Levites, and some of the people and all of the singers and the porters and the Nethanims dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So they returned. They took up an offering. We always have to have an offering, don't we, which is a good thing. And all gave as to their ability to rebuild the temple. So the total number of Levites was actually less than the number of priests. 
at that time, which is opposite of the way it usually is. You usually had a lot more priests than you did um, Levites. That, I said that the opposite way, more of uh, Levites than priests. So a very small amount of the Levites came back to, from Babylon. Uh, after two generations being in exile, there was again a presence of the Jewish people in the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this was a wonderful fulfillment of God's promise to bring Israel back from exile. And during their time in Babylon, Judea just laid in, in waste. It was uninhabited, mostly just a few people there. And other people did not flood in like they did in Israel. But in Judah, it was just laid waste. The ones that were left there kept the Sabbath, and they did not till the soil. They rested from that when they needed to. And God, by his providence, kept that land empty until they came back. Now, today, about 10, 12 years ago, maybe, there was, uh, under the whole community of the Babylonian exiles who were left, who did not come back at this time, way back here, about 10 or 12 years ago, they came from Iraq back to Jerusalem, the Jews that had been left in Babylon. And uh, ben, David Ben-Gurion cited by Yamanuchi describing the modern immigration of Jews. That was three times, 10 years ago, three times as many came back as came back during the exile, after the exile. I thought that was pretty interesting. So that's a lot of people that come back. So if we had 100 to 150,000 come back, that means there's been 300 maybe. 300,000 or more that came back from Iraq. That's a lot of people came back 10 years ago. So as a whole, Israelites had some reason to feel very comfortable in Babylon that made them not want to leave. Uh, their Marashu tablets were discovered in 1873, and the records from there uh, talks about wealthy bankers and businessmen and they would loan out whatever people would want for a price. And so they had a good living. They would give out and take the people's money. And so they did not come back. It was a very prosperous situation, and that's why they chose to stay. Now, there was still some spiritual life during the exile. Ezekiel was a part of that exile. Um, he went into exile in 587 the first group that went, and he describes what we might call a home Bible study. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, it was at his home. He had all the elders that were there from Judah to come to his home, and that's in Ezekiel 8.1. And so it, they didn't have the temple. They couldn't worship at Jerusalem where they were told that they had to go to worship, and so they had it in their home, and they had... They had their laws of purity, they had prayer, and they had fasting in the home there. So it's been suggested that that was the start of, start of synagogues in Mesopotamia during the exile. Any questions or comments on chapter 2? Okay. So we're going to go to chapter 3 now. In verse 1 through 3, 
when this seventh month, which is our October, was come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man in Jerusalem. And then stood up Jeshua, the son of Zodadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and his brethren. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon its basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of the countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord even burnt offerings, morning and evening. So Jeshua and Zerubbabel were the two main leaders in the building project, beginning with the work on the altar, which was outside of the temple. It was in front of the temple, actually. And so they, they were going to do that first. So Zerubbabel was the leader of the people in the political sense, and Jeshua was the leader of the people in a... A spiritual sense. So in the minds of the people, there was only one place that you could build the altar, and that's we're going to have to build it right where it was before. And so that's what they did. Um, Jeshua was the grandson of Sariah, who was the high priest when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem and killed him. But he was the survivor of Sariah, the high priest. And so this Jeshua, or Joshua, as he is named in other script parts of the scripture, was the high, first high priest back in Jerusalem, in Judea. So they found the old foundations where the old altar had been. And they decided that that was the only place that they could build the new altar, where the old one was at one time, and that dated all the way back to Solomon's temple. So they built the altar first three, for three reasons, for spiritual significance. They wanted to do what they could do first that would take the less time and the less finances and resources, so they could do that, that uh, altar first. Uh, it was a very important place because the altar where sin was dealt with, and they had not had an altar for 70 years. The second reason is they, they started the altar because it was a wise spiritual priority, showing that they knew they had sin, and they needed that sin to be taken care of by the atonement of God. Third, they built the altar because it was an act of obedience to do so. God had said, you, you come to the altar, you bring your sacrifices, and you get your sins removed from there. So that was why they wanted to get that done pretty soon. Uh, this is the first thing that has to be done. It's what one of the commentators said, and I thought about us. He said, you have to establish your worship, your praise and worship in a place first before you build. And I thought, here we are. We've been, we've set our services. We've set our praise and worship. Now is the time then to build. But you have to do that first. That's your first priority rather than a building. Absolutely. I thought that was very, very, very good. So worship itself is more important than the house that you have. Absolutely. So. That's kind of neat. 
Yes, I thought that was, that was good. So when they built that altar on the a house of the Lord where it had been, probably the ones, they, they're just surmising this. It's not truth. I mean, it's not written in stone. Probably the people that were still there who were still uh, worshipers of God had built a crude altar maybe there on that same place and had, had used that for 70 years. And so they removed that before they put the new one there. And this announced their presence, and also they said, we are going to build here. So it was two things. We're here, and we're going to build here. Uh, Morgan suggests that they were afraid of the spiritual threat from the surrounding people that were in that land or had some association with the people of that land from idol worship. And so they were very conscious of that, and they did not want to be contaminated by idol worship. So they wanted that altar as soon as they could get it. So the altar that they built in Jerusalem was more um, guarding for them than a wall around Jerusalem would have been. This altar guarded them because they were able to atone for their sins there. In verse 4 through 6, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord's that was consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. And from the first day of the seventh month, October, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not even been laid. So during this Feast of Tabernacles, the families of Israel were committed to camp out in temporary shelters. And that meant that reminded them of how they lived when they escaped from Exodus. And they were in the wilderness all they lived in temporary shelters. And um, the rest, the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, which is what they called this, these little booths that they made that they lived in for a week, uh, is also known as Sukkot. And it's the seventh and the last feast that the Lord commanded Israel to observe. It's one of the three feasts that the Jewish men are commanded to come back to Jerusalem for. Uh, four of them they could do it at home, but three of them they had to come back to Jerusalem for and appear before the Lord God. And it was at this time that Solomon's temple was also dedicated back many years before. And um, they gathered to celebrate under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel at, at this time. So later, Ezra came and read the word of the Lord to the people at, during this feast. The feast begins five days after the Day of Atonement and at a time when the fall harvest has been completed. There's some interesting things about the Feast of Tabernacles. It's mentioned multiple times in the scriptures, and it's called by different names, like the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Lord, the Feast of the Ingathering, Sukkot, all those names. And 
as one of the pilgrim feasts where the, they were commanded, the men were commanded to go to Jerusalem to hold this. It was a time when they also brought their tithes and offerings. So apparently they kept their money until that feast time, and then they brought the money to the house of the Lord. So during the eight-day period, they had many sacrifices that they made through those, through those days. The first day was a Sabbath day, and then it went through through the eighth day, which was also a Sabbath day. And on each of those days, they had a holy convocation on those Sabbath days, lasting eight days. So during the eight days, they lived just in those booths in, in tabernacles that were made with branches of trees. Now, I remember several years ago, we had a study on the feast, and Gloria Marino was the one that was teaching us, and James Ivey built a uh, tabernacle for us, a booth for us in our backyard, and we went out and had a session under that booth. It was kind of neat just to see what it may have been like, very crude, and it was where they lived. But of course, at this time, if you remember, Jerusalem was in shambles. There was nothing livable anyway, and so that was kind of what they had to do anyway. The feasts are also significant in that they foreshadow the work and actions of the coming Messiah. Much of Jesus' public ministry took place in conjunction with the holy priest, the holy uh, feast, and and they, that were set forth by God. So he kept those feasts also. Now the three pilgrim feasts that that we talked about that the Jewish men had to come back for. Uh, were commanded to appear before the Lord are each very important because they regard the life of Christ and his work at redemption. The first one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is symbolic of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The second one, Pentecost, which marks the beginning of the Feast of Weeks, was the time of Jesus' bodily ascension. And then... Most scholars agree that the Feast of Tabernacles is symbolic of his second coming. And many think that he will come during the Feast of Tabernacles when he comes again. Because it has so much significance. There are some that believe that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. And, you know, we celebrate December 25th as the birthday of Christ. Well, that was set forth in the 4th century after his death by the Roman Catholic Church. No one knows the exact day when he was born. But here's what they're showing as some of the evidence that maybe he was born during Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it was unlikely for the shepherds to be out with flocks in December. They didn't keep their flocks out in the field in December. Sure, that, you know, but they would during October. Okay. Um, then the strong possibility that he was, is shown in the words of John in John 1, verse 14. And this is what it says. And I never had thought about it this way. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
The word John chooses here is dwelling. He dwelt, dwelling among us. That is the word tabernacle, okay, which simply means to dwell in a tent. Mm. And so some believe that he intentionally put this word dwell in his scripture to associate the first coming of Christ uh, with the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what some people have said. So Christ came in the flesh to dwell among us for a temporary time, which is what these dwellings were. So while it can't be established for certain that he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, some believe it's a very strong possibility, and it's also then when he will come back. So the Feast of Tabernacles is a very important feast for the Jewish people. Okay. Uh, the feast, like all of the feasts, again, is when the Jews have to go back to Jerusalem, and it should remind us as well of what Jesus did for us, that we received atonement from sin through his death on the cross. And all of this was done before the foundation of the temple was laid that second time. Now, during their long stay in Babylon, the Jews were not able to make any sacrifices. Seventy years, and they could not sacrifice because there was no place for them. They were not in Jerusalem. At that time, they were surrounded with pagan temples. There were about 50 temples mentioned in the Babylonian text. There were 180 open-air shrines for Ishtar. She was the goddess of love, fertility, and sexuality. That was one of her aspects. She was responsible for all life. The second thing she was, she was the goddess of war, and she is depicted many times as having wings and, and armed with weapons. And then third aspect of her, it was a celestial aspect that she was the planet Venus, the morning and the evening star. So uh, then they also had 300 dioceses, which were raised platforms that they used for the Igali gods. It's not clear how many of those they had, but they thought there was probably a group of seven. And Marduk, which we mentioned last week, was a part of one of these. Um, they had 1,200 dioceses for the Ananuki gods. Now, um, remember that Marduk's temple, which was at Ziggurat, or Ziggurat, was what they thought the Tower of Babel looked like. It was a, a pattern for that. Um, the Ananukis are the gods of ancient Mesopotamia, and many, well, there's some, not say many, some of the theorists say that they were aliens from the planet uh, Nibiru. Mm. This is what they think. So he was worshipped for that. Uh, the ancient gods of Mesopotamia had wings. They had horned hats that they wore, cape, horned capes, hats. And they possessed the ability to control all of humanity, and they believed that the heavenly beings shaped their destiny. Whatever happened to it, it was because of these gods. 
All right, verse 7. They also gave money to the masons, the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they wanted to use the best materials that they could to build the, the new temple, and so they tried to use the same thing that Solomon had done when he, used, when he was building the temple. But they had a lot fewer resources than Solomon did. Now, this permission that is mentioned in this verse was not only the legal allowance to allow them to build the temple, but it also included financial uh, resources from Persia, which is from their royal treasury. And it, it could be translated as a grant, that he granted them this money if they would build the temple. Because God had, remember, God had told Cyrus, you, you, you're to build this temple back. So this is, shows that they used Gentile resources, Gentile labor, just like Solomon had done when he built the temple. Verses 8 through 11. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Zodadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of of uh, Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. And then all the people shouted with a great shout, and when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So significantly, the site of this was not called the temple site at that time, but it was called the house of God at Jerusalem. And until it was built, that is what it was known as. They didn't call it a temple until after it was finished. So the second was the month in which Solomon's temple had started, and they started also in the second month to rebuild. The priests, they were dressed in all of their fine apparel. The musicians were ready to praise the Lord, and they sang. And in general, it matches the same way they did when they started the temple that Solomon had built, except that this was much smaller than it was in Solomon's time. And since the destruction of the temple under the Babylonian conquest, there had been no proper place for sacrifice or worship for the people of Israel. So for 70 years, they'd had nothing. Another important step was made in the process of restoration. And this time, though, there's no ark. There's no visible glory. There is no temple, only some small beginnings. But God says that he is enthroned on the praises of Israel and the praises of his people. 
And that was the same as in Solomon's day. Anytime you praise God. Verses 12 through 13. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. And yet many shouted with joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. So these older men, perhaps they had even seen the temple. Maybe some of, of them had seen it being burned. And so they were weeping, knowing that there could never be another temple like that first one. And, and thinking how sad they were that it had been destroyed. But then the temple didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. It did not have the heavenly fire. It did not have the uh, mercy seat. It didn't have the manna, the jar of manna. It didn't have Aaron's bud, that, the rod that budded. Um, it didn't have the Shekinah glory. It didn't have the spirit of prophecy, and it probably didn't have the Urim and Thurman, Thurman that they'd used. But the prophets warned, that, don't worry because it's not like the old temple. It's not as great as that one. It is still the temple of the Lord, and this is where we will go to worship. So the younger people had no remembrance at all because they had never seen the temple, didn't know what it was like. And so they were shouting with joy that once again they were going to have a temple where they could come and worship God the way that God had asked them to do. And so they were the ones who were shouting with joy. So here we have some crying with sorrow and some shouting with joy all at the same time at the same place on the same occasion, and each of them felt the same type of interest. So with that, we're going to end. Do you have any comments? Or- Thank you for listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. If you would like to watch our message live or looking for more information about our church, visit us. Follow us on Facebook, Restoration Church.